Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio for this week on the 30th of October, although this is going to be recorded on the 20, um, this has been recorded on the 29th. Um, I'd like to um, start off by, or just to introduce the presenters, um, we have myself, Jacob. And me, Zane. And Chloe, good morning. So good morning, everyone. And I guess just before I go on to some of the, um, the latest kind of headline news, as we usually would um, at the start of every program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kula Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. Now, I guess maybe to kind of start off, um, thought we'd have a bit of a kind of political reflection. We're kind of like for all our kind of listeners in Melbourne, um, we are getting into a bit of a new kind of period um, because as of Wednesday, um, essentially a lot of the significant kind of restrictions have been eased um, with one of the kind of notable kind of things that, you know, people are kind of going on about. You can now go to a pub again. <laughs> you can now go to a restaurant um, and, um, we're not necessarily imposed under a hard lock. Well, we're not imposed under a hard lockdown. The lockdown has basically been lifted with, I guess, the four reasons to um, leave home have essentially been abolished. And so there's no need when you go outside to explain yourself when you go out. I think this is, I think, quite significant, um, especially with, um, you know, how the case, um, how the state government managed to bring the cases right down uh, because at this moment um, we've had two days of zero cases with only um, Wednesday um, been having only two um, two cases with one case being linked to kind of community transmission um, or known case uh, rather. Um, so it's actually I think you know for, for probably a lot of our listeners it is probably quite an exciting period and the fact that we can probably go outside normally again, although we still have to, we still haven't completely escaped the pandemic. Um, and it's sort of likely that we're kind of entering, I guess, into this sort of period, I guess, of COVID kind of normal, um, i.e. there will be, you know, certain restrictions, um, especially like caps on the number of gatherings. You're still only able to have two people over at your home, which I think I'll have to say is probably uh, a good Sing um, that they're taking um, household gatherings a bit slower because I guess I remember from when they first started easing restrictions, um, they eased restrictions um, quite very loosely quite early on on the question of household gatherings. And in fact, I remember when restrictions were being eased that you could have it up to at least 10 to 20 people over at your house, um, even while case numbers were at least up to five to seven um, a day. So I think we're kind of in a much better position with um, with that. 
And um, I think, yeah, that's, I think that's sort of really or really what to say. I think it is quite an exciting time and hopefully we can start going to uh, in-person protests. And um, I know Refugee Action Collective are organising a protest and there will hopefully be uh, protests around the Jabberon Embassy um, that will, that is being, um, been organised in response, which we're going to be talking a bit more about um, later. But yeah, that's sort of, and hopefully in-person activist events will hopefully um, start, but that might be a slower kind of progression. In fact, we're probably not going to necessarily get back into the live studio for um, for probably a month or maybe not until next year at this stage. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, uh, it's been said before, um, there's plenty of things that you can criticise about the Andrews government, including um, the, the disgraceful and, and racist um, mm. bulldozing of, of trees in the sacred trees in the Jaburang, um, uh, in Jaburang country. Um, they've also given heaps of resources and new powers to the police in the time that the Andrews Labor government have been in power. But the response to COVID, like, does deserve a bit of credit because ultimately human life has been put ahead of profit and a big extensive lockdown, which has come at a significant financial cost, has been put in place and kept in place against substantial political pressure being pushed by the Liberals and the uh, mainstream media. And uh, it has undoubtedly saved lives. And I think if we had a Liberal government here who didn't take the lockdown seriously and who were who would quickly roll over to pressure to open up again, we could very well be in a situation here like you've got in parts of Europe where the case numbers have just mushroomed out of control, uh, where the hospitals are overflowing, people can't get treatment and lots of people are dying. So, yeah, it's definitely good that that situation has been avoided and that we can now... Uh, it's kind of like... It's, it's, it's an almost elimination strategy, like it's a suppression of COVID strategy, which is pretty rigorous to the point where it's like almost on the edge of like elimination. And by having, by waiting until the case numbers are very low like that, it's, yeah, it's a lot safer for people to be able to interact again now to a certain extent, so... Yeah, I think regional Victoria as well has also declared themselves coronavirus free and Geelong has had four weeks of being virus free so it's it's really great that as of Wednesday yesterday because we're recording on a Thursday um that yeah Melbourne has marked its first day out of lockdown and I mean I guess you know we we can't really forget about the many who did die during the height of this pandemic you know mm. mostly people in privately run um Care homes, you know, they, they accounted for about three quarters of the, the country's, this country's COVID-19 deaths. Uh, many were older and their lives should not have been, um, lost. But credit, yeah, I agree that credit, uh, should be given to the Andrews government. They did step up and, um, 
yeah, I guess, I mean, this is, but it is considered still, COVID-19 is a novel virus. It just started killing people last year, uh, late last year. We don't, we still don't really know much about it. There are no proven vaccines. There are no specific treatments for COVID-19. Um, and so far, we've been really successful here in Victoria managing this virus, um, you know, with our public health measures. And here in Victoria, especially, we've come out of one of the longest, hardest, but absolutely necessary lockdowns in the world, you know, with curfews. Uh, I think there's still a, a ring of steel around Melbourne, and I think that's going to be lifted soon on the 9th of November, unless that's changed again. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a great um, yeah it's where we're doing pretty well uh, compared to you know say the US and parts of Europe that are that that are, are not um, caring about human life they're just letting the the virus take hold of everybody and they're 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 really just letting um, a herd immunity um, you know just kill people in the thousands. So we're, we're pretty, we're, yeah, we've done pretty well here. Well, just to comment actually a bit on some of that, because I've just been reading a bit on kind of like what the state of play is currently in Europe and the US. And, you know, I don't know everything. I haven't looked into kind of every single country, but it's kind of a bit striking and a bit interesting that France um, has at least, is having at least 30,000 cases a day. And, Really, it's lockdown. The, the it's lockdown is really not even on the level of um, stage three lockdown in um, Victoria. And in fact, I think as far as I know, France might have mandatory masks. But it seems to me that um, the ba- the basic model is yes, schools and workplaces are open. <laughs> but you can't have fun or go outside. So that seems to be, um, it's basically, someone described it as, it's basically like, as soon as you finish work, it's basically a curfew. Um, there's basically a curfew after you finish work, which I think is quite um, interesting, um, especially compared to the Victorian experience, because Victoria, to its credit, um, you know, did close down schools or not necessarily fully close them. They kept schools open for children of essential workers, which I think is actually completely re- a completely reasonable policy. And there, there's um, and there was also limitations on childcare. And yeah, so I think it's sort of interesting that um, countries like Europe, um, in Europe like France, um, don't even seem to with. 30,000 cases a day don't even seem to be going as far with the lockdown as Victoria did. And, of course, we did that um, that lockdown in the context of having at least 300 to 500 cases a day. And um, in the United States, um, it appears that, you know, (laughs) it's having 70, over 74,000 cases a day. Um, And it sort of honestly seems like it's it seems to be inconsistent. Basically, I was talking to a friend in the United States and I asked them if they had mandatory masks and it said, essentially, it's up. The states aren't um, mandating masks, but businesses, it's up to businesses to mandate masks. So they're like some stores that you're not allowed to go into unless you wear masks. Um, But of course, obviously, you can see the issues of that, of leaving it to business because business will have to balance profits and public mm. health 
And, of course, they'll generally decide to go for, um, generally lean towards profits before public health. So, yeah, that's sort of just sort of the interesting kind of thing. On the, on the, the vaccine, it does seem to me, the development of vaccine does seem like it, it does look promising. Um, in a sense that it's sort of like, it seems like most of the experts are saying what we will have a vaccine by the middle of next year, which is still a long time away. But even, um, and I even noticed that the, the main, um, the main sort of person, um, the kind of expert who's sort of been the voice of the pandemic in the US, um, Dr. Falke mm. has, is optimistic about the prospects of a vaccine. And of course, he's not like some, Nutter. Um, in fact, one of the sort of <laughs> funny things about Falke and his role in the Trump administration is <laughs> there's been this weird contradiction with um, how Trump basically is basically trying to appeal to a far right base who basically says that Falke is full of full of mm. crap <laughs> and um, one of his mm. sort of um, election kind of things against Biden, arguments against Biden is Biden will start listening to Falke in terms of deciding public health policy. So that's sort of, <laughs> that's sort of the funny kind of it, It's sort of like. Ooh, what a smoking gun. What an incriminating political yeah. attack on You can Biden. kind of imagine in, in an Australian context, if you let, let's say um, in, in Australia where basically you had, you had a huge disconnect between the poly, the chief health officer and the actual prem, and the premier. It would be sort of a bit bizarre, but that's the situation that the US is kind of facing at the moment. Yeah, the thing about the vaccine, I mean, the people of America just having to, you know, they're basically counting on a vaccine, but that's really not going to do what we think it's going to do. In a world run by capitalists, you know, a vaccine, I mean, First of all, it might only be available to people who can afford it or, you know, people in certain areas that might be able to have access to it. But actually rolling it out, it, it'll be one of the largest uh, vaccination projects in history. And because we're talking about vaccinating the entire planet. So until then, you know, we need to keep our public health measures in place in healthcare and aged care and any care work shouldn't be privatized. Um, but, you know, in the U.S., they don't have a national strategy. They don't have any, they haven't implemented any basic public health measures. People are just walking around infected. They don't even know it. And um, even Trump at the beginning, you spoke of uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, which was supposed to be overseeing the task, the so-called COVID-19 task force, you know, Trump right at the beginning asked him, can't we just let the virus just come in and wash over people? You know, what happens if we do that? And Dr. Fauci said, well, you know, we'd have millions of people dead. That's why we can't do that. But that seems to have been the plan all along because I think their chief of uh, staff has recently come out and said that they're not going to control the pandemic. They give up. They surrender. So that's going to mean hundreds and hundreds of thousands more people dead. And I think on top of that, there's just Trump's compulsive lying. So yeah. yesterday I've heard news coverage where Trump and the administration are saying, oh, COVID's finished. That's, we won. And that has like a record daily tally of new infections. Can I just add like it's, a small... It really is bizarre. Oh, 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Can I um, add a point, um, Chloe? Uh, I was just going to add like a small fact that mm. on the 6th of October, uh, many of you would have heard about the White House being infected. Trump was infected with COVID-19 and now there's a second wave in the White House. But on the 6th of October, there were more infections at the White House on that day than in New Zealand, Vietnam, Taiwan, Thailand and Australia combined. Yeah. Oh, to add just to add a few comments um, to the the on the on the question around the vaccine. Um, at this stage, I think it's in sort it's in capitalist sort of best interest that the um, the vaccine gets distributed widely. Um, but of course, it is going to the issue of distribution. I don't think it is, there's going to be an issue of cost. There's more likely going to be an issue of distribution because yeah. basically the capitalist class have no concept of planning for um, uh, for the rollout of such a of, of vaccines such as this. However, it will be in their interest to make sure it's given free or at a very low cost because they do want the they will want the majority of people to have it. Um, I imagine that any sort of vaccine rollout will be quite limited um, at the start mm. because it will probably be prioritising vulnerable parts of the population and um, healthcare workers. Um, and it will be probably be a while before the average sort of citizen, so to speak, is able to get a hold of the vaccine because, as you said, it has to be distributed worldwide. I don't even think um, they have the production capacity um, mm. to even be able to roll it out that quickly. Um, you, you remember how, if we remember how capitalism struggled to even produce things as basic as PPOE yeah. masks um, and take something more um, that requires more complicated manufacturing like a vaccine. And um, just, I guess, I guess one more, I guess one more comment, because I I think we'll go put, um, put this on hold and discuss what's happening with the Jabberon. Um, But there was, (laughs) there was a very funny um, uh, tweet um, by um, known celebrity Kim Kardashian on Twitter, where she has apparently for her 40th birthday, managed to rent out a private island and then bragged about how her and her immediate circle managed pretended things were normal for a, for a brief moment in time. And, of course, that obviously created a huge backlash on social media with people going responding on um, to Kinkai. There are some people who can't even see their, their family because of this virus. So we, there are people who have lost their jobs as a result of this pandemic, and you're here tweeting about your... Private island, um, going, um, partying on a private island. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Some people with too much money and fame just lose. They they just turn deaf. They they completely lose perspective. And she's just not in touch with the ordinary person. Obviously, I didn't hear that. That's disgusting. Yeah, it's become a it's become a bit of a, a funny meme with um people um making um using um using the sort of line about spe- having to spend two weeks in quarantine blah blah to have one brief moment where everything could be normal again <laughs> All right well i might just go play a quick announcement um and we might move on just to another news story there's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3cr grid Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Yes, this is our vibration. 
Check out Music Sans Frontier. Great voices. Music matters. Through the hip sister hop show. The Heavy Session. The Planet X Radio Show. Satellite Skies. Shindig. Sweet Dreams. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And now what we're just talking, I guess, about the easing of the lockdown and, I guess, the state of COVID-19 internationally, especially how Australia compares to the likes of the United States and Europe, which is going through its kind of second surge in kind of infections. Now, I guess a bit of a going into the kind of next sort of story, it's a bit, it's quite, you know, why we're just sort of praising um the Daniel Andrews sort of government's response to COVID-19 in terms of kind of um, containing it at the same time that they announced the easing of restrictions. um, Many of our listeners are probably aware about the efforts to save the sacred trees in Jabberon country. And sadly that that has been dealt a savage blow with the Victorian government allowing the removal of a 350 your old Lello box known as the Drexens, Drexens tree. So just as they're easing restrictions and, and, um, while the protesting, um, is still in a sense illegal. And in fact, um, many protesters have attempted to go to the Jabberon embassy to, um, protest and defend, um, the streets um, being chopped down, including people in Melbourne. And those who have joined the protest have been issued with $5,000, um, COVID fines. And yeah, it's, um, it's, it's completely disgraceful. The police have, um, uh, have obviously come in full force to defend, um, to stop, um, to repress the protests. And of course, the other issue, and you know, this bears kind of repeating, um, the, it's all, um, the whole reason that they're trying, attempting to destroy these trees, which is, is about duplicating this highway road. But of course, the Jabberon campaign has never been opposed to building, um, building this, um, this highway or this duplication. All they've merely asked is that transport for Victoria, formerly Ricked Roads, move it to the north of the highway so it doesn't destroy the, the sacred trees that are important to the Jabberon um, instead of the south. And, of course, um, the um, the bureaucrats and um, Vic Roads have actually refused to even consider this an, an option, even though independent analysis has predicted that it would be cheaper. Um, on the other hand, um, the protest is continuing. Um, people are still visiting the camp. Um, there might be some solidarity actions being organised in response because those in the camp have um, support, um, will be supporting kind of any solidarity actions being planned. And um, one positive thing, although this will have to be, as you listen to this, I advise you to kind of look up on the latest news on this scope, especially looking at the Jabberon um, Heritage Embassy um, Facebook page. The Victorian Supreme Court has issued an injunction on the realignment of the Western Highway until 2pm on October 29th, which is 
as of when you when you'll be listening to this recording will be yesterday. Um, so we don't know what's going to happen beyond that. It could be the injunction could be extended, and the and there's also this sort of um, the other thing is I think I would definitely recommend if though if you're as a way of kind of putting pressure, although I don't think it's the um, like the most effective kind of way. I think it would be good if people could organise mass protests, but you should. I, I do recommend calling the Victorian Premier's office to sort of voice your kind of opposition to this because the Victorian Premier, um, while they, um, Daniel Andrews, while there's sort of this bit of a defence of him going around that, you know, he's not consciously aware of what, you know, the state government is doing or Vic Rose is doing regarding um, the destruction of the street, although he didn't really give necessarily a good response in the last press conference when he was questioned about this. He does have the power to recall the police and also major projects from the site immediately. And so, yeah, that's um, that's basically, I guess, the current kind of state of play with the Jabberon. I, I do recommend those if you have the means or willing to take the risk to visit the site and um, join the protest camp. I definitely recommend doing that. Um, but I also would advise you to keep an eye out for any solidarity actions that are hopefully going to be organised in the, in the future. Hmm. It's, I just think it's a really depressing and outrageous example of racism, particularly when often with these types of things, you've got this, this road and it's been designed by a bunch of bureaucrats and technical people who have the special knowledge about, you know, how the special acts and regulations covering covering um, freeway construction or work. Um, so it's difficult to mount a, a counter-proposal if you're not trained in all of that sort of complex legislation. And one of the things that's really disgusting about this whole thing is that there was this alternative option put forward and this was well publicised a year ago when the, when the protest was blowing up back then. There was an alternative proposal put forward which had been worked on by a traffic engineer um, who, who lives in the local area and had worked with landowners and the Aboriginal community to put it together. I mean, that's not that often that that happens. The, the, Activists just happen to have a uh, random traffic engineer who can, um, you know, a uh, person by the name of Jim Higgs, it was, who drew up this alternative design, a so-called northern alignment, which would avoid wiping out the sacred trees. So there's a very obvious and easy alternative here. Someone who with substantial knowledge of how road planning works has you know helped put forward this alternative option and they've just ignored that and ploughed ahead with this plan to demolish these sacred trees and now you've got these articles with people trying to say oh that wasn't the real directions tree the real directions tree is 10 kilometers away and and kind of like I, I, I hesitate to use the word gaslighting because it's it's a vexed term but look this literally articles in the paper saying, no, no, that tree, there was nothing sacred about that tree, and basically alleging that the numerous Aboriginal people who are 
from Jabaran country, including Lydia Thorpe, who are saying, hey, this is really wrong and, and disturbing and, and terrible what you've just done. You've destroyed the directions tree. And there's an article saying that these people are, you know, they're wrong or they're making stuff up. It's just, it's so insulting. Yeah, um, totally, Zane. Um, uh, just to give people a bit of background, I'm sure listeners already know, uh, most listeners know about the, the Jabaron, but I'll just give you a few facts for the people who haven't been keeping up with the story. So it's been... 864 days since the establishment of the Jaburong Heritage Protection Embassy uh, to protect, they were formed to protect the sacred women's country from the Victorian uh, government's Western Highway Duplication Project in the state's Western District. And this particular 12-kilometre stretch, and I'm reading from their website, um, where the expansion of a road between Melbourne and Adelaide has been planned, um, holds a, a sacred connection for the Jabarong women. Um, these are birthing trees uh, they're trying to protect, and they're more than some are more than 800 years old. And thousands of generations of uh, Jabarong babies have been born, um, you know, in those trees uh, near those trees. And they, these trees are really beautiful. They're um, they've seen over they've seen so many generations born inside of the hollow of the trunk. And that directions tree, I think, was over 350 years old, and it was. Sh- and yeah, as of and the Victorian government, they have approved the destruction of 3,000 native trees in order to reroute that stretch of the Western Highway. And two, 263 of those trees are sacred to the Jabarong people, um, these majestic ancestral trees. And when we talk about you know, global tree restoration potential and environmental science research shows that, you know, billions and billions of trees need to be planted in order to capture large amounts of carbon dioxide. And here we are chopping down these um, carbon traps. Uh, so, yeah, the, the Jabarang have been calling on people to join them in, in protecting this, this sacred um, landscape. And we can't really forget back in 2000. And, 15, the state government and Vic Rhodes were working on another highway and they cut down 900 giant native trees. So they will do it if we don't protest. And lastly, um, locals also say that 60, because I think Jacob mentioned that we could actually save money by not, by not doing this. Locals say that $65 million actually could be saved if Vic Rhodes just widened the existing highway instead of paving this entire new road. Um, by creating this road that they want to do, that they want to create, motorists would only save two minutes driving on that new road. By cutting down 800-year-old trees, they just want to save two minutes. So that just shows the lack of disrespect uh, towards our our First Nations. Um, Yeah, so it's it's really sad um, what's happening, and we really need to support um, the Jabron people. I think there's a real racism inherent as well. There's this idea that only things built out of stone and wood and manufactured products are kind of worthy of preservation. But if it's quote unquote just some trees, what's so special about them? I think that's such a mm. like Anglo-centric 
view to impose. Look, who is the Victorian government to tell Aboriginal people that they're just trees and that they're not that special and they're not sacred? And why does something need to be altered? Why, why can't something be intrinsically of value or a sacred place when it is, quote, unquote, just trees? Why does... Why does there have to be man-made landscapes for it to be something that's, you know, worthy of recognition and preservation? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if it was a church, like a 300-year-old church, it would be a different story mm. for the for the government. I mean, they wouldn't even think about bulldozing a, a centuries-old church down. Mm. Mm. I also think that it, I guess it reflects a kind of broader thing, I think, about the capitalist system in a sense that, you know, for something as basic as stopping a sacred tree from being destroyed, the, you know, the demands of the Jabberon are not necessarily that radical in, in a sense that they're not, all they're asking is to don't destroy the tree. They're not mm. saying that the highway shouldn't be built. Of course, there would be, there could be some environmental act, an environmental activist campaign can form around not building a highway at all, maybe on the basis of reducing cars and roads. But of course, that's besides the point. Um, I, I think it reflects how, um, that, you know, the capitalist system can't even accept any concessions in a sense that as soon as some group of bureaucrats have decided on a plan, they're the experts, they know what's best, and any ordinary um, per, uh, any ordinary group of people who are organised separate from that cannot have a say over that. And capitalism is always very clear to, um, to make that point. We we'll defend to... that principle to the death. You're not allowed to question or modify what we do. You're not allowed to exert some you know, small aspect of control over what the government is doing. All right. Well, um, uh, just to kind of um, sum this up, and, yeah, for those listeners who are listening, um, highly recommend you follow um, the um, Jabberon Heritage Protection Embassy um, Facebook page for more updates on developments. If you have the means to visit and um, help with the protest site, uh, I definitely recommend that. Um, there are um, carpools um, happening um, to the site um, still, and, of course, hopefully this kind of injunction could, in, in theory, it would be good if it could be if we could um, stop the works until the 7th of or the 8th of November, um, because by the 8th of November um, or the 9th of, no- um, 9th of November, people will be able to legally visit and protest against the site because Victorian, uh, Victoria and um, the, um, Victoria will become a one state again and we won't be stuck into this. Um, for those in Melbourne, we're, we, we won't be stuck in um, Melbourne and prevented from leaving. All right. Well, I might just go play um, a quick announcement um, and then we might move on to the next part of the program. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5 p.m. and talk to a staff member. At 03 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And for our 
one of our interviews that we have for our program today. We're going to be interviewing Pedro, um, who is a musician and uh, educator with an interest in aesthetics and politics, social change and mental health. And um, the reason why we have him on the program today is um, he's originally from Chile um, and he has been quite active on writing a case about the recent kind of social processes um, and, pro- and the protest movement that has been happening in Chile. And I'm quite re- um, recently Chile Chile has voted overwhelmingly in favour of rewriting the country's constitution uh, to basically replace um, the guiding principles that were kind of, were opposed four decades ago under the military dictatorship of Pinochet. So yeah, Pedro, um, I guess the first kind of question I guess I want to kind of ask you is I guess what can you guess tell us about I guess the background I guess of this referendum to um, rewrite the the country's constitution. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. Um, well, about the background, um, uh, as you probably know, um, Pinochet had the current constitution of Chile written um, in 1980. Uh, that's kind of uh, in the middle of, of his uh, 17-year-long dictatorship. Um, and ever since the dictatorship uh, officially ended in 1989, um multiple uh, political actors and, and sectors of the of the citizenship have called for a change of this constitution uh, because of well it wasn't it wasn't uh, uh, it doesn't really represent uh, democratic values by any means no? um, back in the day of, of Pinochet uh, there was a referendum on whether to uh, stay with that constitution or uh, drop it when, when returning to so-called democracy. Um, but um, there were no uh, uh, guarantees that that referendum uh, had any kind of democratic validity. In fact, when we review the uh, campaigns that took place back then uh, in 1988, if, if I remember well, um, for that referendum, uh, it was very um, uh, non, very, very partial, you know. Like uh, it was a very clearly, um, it had a very clear uh, coercive tone uh, in favor of approving staying with that constitution. And uh, despite many calls from from many sectors of the population to to change that, uh, it took a massive citizens' revolt that took place last year uh, to actually put real pressure on politicians to um, get the thing done and and actually uh, submit this decision to a proper referendum, uh, which took place last weekend, last Sunday, 25th of October, in uh, Chile and, and worldwide for those of us who live abroad. And I guess, what can you, I guess, tell us um, about, I guess, the results, I guess, of this referendum? Because um, um, I sort of noted that it was kind of an overwhelming kind of majority. But I guess a bit more of, I guess, a story about, I guess, the results in, in that case. Yeah, well, the, refer- the referendum contained two questions. One uh, regarding whether or not to have a new constitution written. And the second question was, well, in case of having a new constitution written, whether it should be a sort of um, citizens assembly or a mix of citizens and 
Congress people uh, to write this new constitution. And uh, the results worldwide were uh, about 78% uh, in favor of, of uh, having a new constitution written and uh, a similar number in favor of having uh, a citizens assembly without without uh, a half of uh, current Congress people involved in the writing of it. All right. And what can you guess um, now with this kind of result kind of coming in, I guess, what is, I guess, the implications of this kind of constitution being written, especially in terms of politics um, in, in Chile? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, the results were overwhelming. No? The, the, it, it is a very clear mandate from the people to, to have a new constitution written uh, by and for the people. Uh, but this process is only just beginning with this. No, this is just, uh, this is not a, a, a battle won, but just uh, the beginning of, of the big battle that will be to actually um, have this uh, written to satisfy the demands from the people, demands that include um, uh, management of natural resources that uh, currently, especially the, the, the resource of, resources of fresh water, uh, many rivers are uh, privatized and sold to companies that divert them, sometimes leaving whole towns without water to um, distribute to plantations of, uh, of, of uh, vegetables for export, as uh, has been recently discovered in Australia, no, in Australia that, that happens too. So um, whole rivers yeah, diverted to just um, supply plantations uh, for export. And um, also the demands from indigenous people, uh, particularly uh, from the Mapuche nation in the, in the south of Chile, uh, they have been um, uh, struggling for their rights, uh, for the land rights for many decades, well, centuries, you could say, really. Uh, but especially in the, in the last few decades, it's been a particularly um, a hard for them to, to fight that battle. Um, issues of uh, gender um, equity, uh, issues of um, uh, ability equity, and um, all of those are expected to have uh, quotas in the uh, constitutional assembly you know, that, that uh, is elected. So uh, hopefully there will be a, a gender uh, parity. You know, uh, it is expected to be 50-50 uh, in, in terms of gender. And um, the, it is being argued how what percentage uh, should be uh, should correspond to quotas for people with different abilities for uh, indigenous peoples of different nations and so on yeah and I guess um what the next kind of question I guess that flows out of this okay so okay my, from my kind of understanding so they've voted I guess to kind of adopt a new constitution and it's quite clear that the social movements I guess have a number of kind of demands, I guess, on what this constitution could kind of shame, um, should, um, should ha have written on it. And I guess, what is, I guess, the, the sort of process by which, um, this constitution will kind of be rewritten? Because, um, from my understanding, you know, in, in, a, if, if, um, hypothetically, 
any country, any nation state were to kind of rewrite the kind of constitution, you'd almost have an assumption that it would be kind of left to, I guess, the parliament or the elected sort of government that's already kind of elected. And I guess the other sort of thing that sort of that in some ways that sort of comes off as a bit of a contradiction, but I'm sure you'll have more to kind of say there because from my understanding, I guess, of the protest movement um, in Chile, the protest movement in Chile has sort of been spurred by a kind of de- general distrust of those who are currently kind of in power. So I kind of want to hear, you know, I guess a bit of your comments on some of those kind of elements. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the social movement that exploded uh, about a year ago in, in, uh, on the 18th, from the 18th of October uh, last year uh, has been characterized by being very heterogeneous. You know, it's been lots of different uh, groups coming together, uh, struggling together against uh, the government, against the oppression of a neoliberal system that has been uh, ruling ever since the times of Pinochet, so ever since neoliberalism was invented and experimented with in in our country. Um, And because of this heterogeneity, there is no no one voice of the people, you know, um, uh, demanding clear points to be addressed. Uh, but if there is one common denominator for uh, for all of these groups that have been struggling together, it is uh, that of mistrust, distrust for the politicians that have been in power um, during this whole process that uh, was called a transition to democracy back in, 18, uh, in 1989, uh, when Pinochet handed over power uh, officially. But, uh, yeah, during these uh, 30 years, ever since, uh, people have been uh, cheated of the, the promise of, of a proper democracy, of uh, dignity, of justice uh, for all the people that were uh, killed by the regime, by all the people who were tortured, and, uh, and for all the people that has been continuously displaced during dictatorship and after. Uh, by the neoliberal uh, system that uh, the dictatorship left in place uh, allowed by this constitution. Oh, yeah. so the process of, of, uh, of forming this assembly, uh, it will be uh, elected by popular vote um, according to different distri- districts. And uh, yeah, it will be conformed by 155 uh, elected representatives of the people who cannot hold public um, uh, public positions. They, they cannot be public servants. If, uh, if they currently are, uh, they automatically uh, cease in their position by being candidates. And um, ne- nevertheless, still uh, many politicians are already um, pushing to to be part of that process, politicians that have um, significantly lost trust from their electorates uh, are still, you know, in, uh, trying to push very hard to to be part of that process. Okay. And I guess um, what telling um, in terms of this kind of process of the electing, I guess these 150 kind of people. I guess just to clarify one thing. Um, those 150 people who do get elected, their role really is to help contribute to the drafting this constitution. They would play no other sort of political role other than just drafting the constitution. 
Yeah, that's the well, that's the big question. Uh, I don't have an answer for that. Uh, um, maybe, yeah, maybe there is some some clarity there that I don't have. But uh, yeah, honestly, I, I don't see much clarity there in in that regard. I mean, it's it's 155 uh, people conforming this uh, this uh, working group, but um, to what extent those people will have some degree of expertise in law is uh, unknown at this stage. Uh, will they have um, the actual capacity to write the constitution themselves? Will it be more like an advisory group? That's all to be seen, really. You know, the extent yeah. of agency in mm-hmm. the writing of the of the new constitution. Yeah. And I guess what can you tell us, I guess, about the demographic of, I guess, of people who are running for this for these um, kind of positions? Um, are they kind of drawn from the social movements? Would they be like classified as like uh, like individuals who would be running for this? Would they be considered sort of leaders um, in some of the in that in kind of the protest movement that has been sort of engulfed Chile in Chile in kind of like the past year? Yeah, that hasn't been defined uh, yet. I mean, uh, since only now the, the election results, the referendum results were made public, um, it is uh, it is to be seen in the next few weeks, I guess, uh, who really conformed the the tickets to to get elected for these positions, to to compete for these positions. Um, how much weight political parties will put in in uh, competing against each other and against independent uh, tickets. Um, yeah, if unions will have an important role, if um, uh, social leaders, local social leaders will have a role, um, yeah, all, all of that is to be seen really mm. in the near future. All right. Well, that get, gets into, the, I guess, the kind of next question is, and since with the sort of... Um, Passing, I guess, of um, replacing this, um, this the, the country's kind of constitution. What's kind of next for the kind of protest movement um, in Chile? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, again, because there is no one uh, leader or there is no one unified force driving that, is uh, is pretty much to be seen uh, how how it spontaneously uh, keeps uh, the struggle, how the struggle uh, stays on the street. And uh, that's of, of key importance, I think, because if we start uh, congratulating ourselves for this uh, victory in the referendum and uh, leave the streets, um, it will that will allow politicians to um, kind of kidnap this process Whereas, uh, in my, in my opinion, at least, uh, it is of key importance that the streets keep being uh, occupied and that the, the social movements, uh, the, the social revolt keeps putting pressure on the political class to, um, to be accountable, not to be, uh, to respond to the demands of the people. Hmm. All right. Well, do you have any guess, any final kind of concluding comments you would like to make? Um, perhaps just, yeah, uh, what, what I just said is, is my, is my kind of, uh, desired way forward, no? uh, that, that the struggle continues on the streets to, to keep the pressure on the political class, 
to make it clear that um, that we don't trust the current uh, Congress, that we don't trust the current government, and uh, and also lots of the demands from these social movements uh, are not satisfied by the just the referendum. You know, there are still uh, many many uh, political prisoners. Um, apprehended during the revolt, there are still many uh, Mapuche indigenous political prisoners um, kidnapped by the state from their land uh, for for defending it. Um, there are still many people who have been uh, tortured and mutilated by the police during the revolt uh, that still haven't had uh, justice made. So. Um, uh, still, the, the pension system, uh, which is uh, one of the big flags of, of struggle for this movement, uh, hasn't been resolved and, and won't be resolved uh, until the constitution is changed. All of those have to uh, have pressure kept on the politicians in order for change to actually happen. That won't happen uh, without that pressure from the people, from the people on the streets. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Pedro. Anyway, um, just to um, let um, just inform listeners, we were just interviewing um, Pedro about um, the whole significance of um, Chile voting um, to um, rewrite, I guess, the country's constitution. Um, you're listening to a Green Left Radio, and we'll just play a quick announcement um, before we move on to the next part of our program. All right. Well, thank you very much, Pedro. Um, well, thank great. you. All right. Well, I'm eager to get off now because it's actually 8.20 p.m. here. I'm just get a quarter day now. And sure. thank you very much for the interview. No worries. My pleasure. Good yeah. luck. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. A determined community campaign over five years won the ban on fracking and a moratorium on onshore gas drilling for Victoria. It was a great victory for grassroots people power, but now the Victorian government has decided to lift the moratorium on onshore drilling, even though its own report admits it won't bring down gas prices. Even worse, they want to open up the west coast of the state to offshore gas drilling. It's essential we stand up now and make it clear that the time for new fossil fuels is over. Join the campaign by checking the Friends of the Earth website at www.melbournefo.org.au slash gas. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And now it is time for the activist calendar. Now, obviously, with the easing of restrictions, um, there's going to be there's a number of different events. Um, usually, the some of these events would just be online kind of only, but there are a number of in-person events, and I'll make sure to kind of make the distinction when I am making these announcements. Now, this coming Sunday, there is going to be a book launch with Marxist economist um, Michael Roberts, um, Angles 200, his contribution to political economy, and that is going to be at 6pm, and it's been organised by 
the Marxist Left Review and Socialist Alternative. And um, I personally think it would be it will be quite an interesting um, um, discussion and presentation. The next event is on Tuesday, November the 3rd. Um, there's going to be an online forum, Envisioning a Democratic University with Professor Rowan Connell. And as far as I know, this has been organised by the NTU Melbourne University branch. So if you go on to the NTEU website, um, Victorian website, you should be able to get the details um, to register and so on. The next event is there is there's going to be a protest on Friday, November the 6th, um, protest for climate justice being organised by Uni Students for Climate um, Justice. And that is going to be happening on Friday, November the 6th um, at 5pm at the Edinburgh Gardens in Fitzroy North. The next event is on Saturday, November the 14th. There's going to be a refugee um, action collective protest um, that is being organised right now. Time titled Freedom and Security for Refugees Now. And that's going to be at 2pm. And it's going to be held at three different locations, um, namely the pro, a, a, a detention centre in Faulkner, a detention centre in um, March at the Marchro Hotel, and in on Swanson Street. So that's going to be happening on Saturday, the 14th of November, 2pm. The next event um, is... Oh, just before, to get um, find out details about how you can register for that event and everything, I would suggest going to the Refugee Action Collective Facebook page or website. Now, the next um, event is on the 22nd of November at 11am, um, which is going to be Block Aid iMark 2020. Now, this time around, it's going to be an online event because... Um, the International Mining and Resources Conference is going to be held online. Now, the main thing that's going to be happening here is there's going to be a sort of count conference being organised, which will be sort of trying to give voice to the voices that have um, that are not being heard at the International Mining and Resources Conference. You know, so you'll be hearing from Aboriginal uh, activists. Um, you'll be hearing from people who are affected on the front lines by the impacts of mining. So, yeah, if you go onto the Blockade iMark Facebook page, you should be able to find details on how to link in with that. Anyway, um, I might just go, that's all in terms of announcements. Um, the following week we'll probably have more announcements because with the easing restrictions there'll probably be more events. Um, I will say that it's not likely that there'll be many in-person events. In fact, a lot of in-person, I mean, a lot of um, indoor events, um, a lot of indoor because um, COVID-19 is most um, contagious at, in, indoors. Um, so there'll likely be, um, mo you'll we'll mainly probably see protests in this kind of period um, because most protests generally take place outside. So anyway, I might just play a quick announcement and um, you can, and we'll go to the rest of the program. Hey, all you mob, it's Dr. Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal trust run on a health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter. 
You're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, now, for the next part of the program, I'm going to be playing a recording of a speech from the Eco-Socialism 2020 conference, um, From Rebellion to Revolution, um, which was organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance and took place on Saturday, October the 24th. So this is the first talk that opened up the panel by Peter Boyle. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, uh, online and in the room today. Uh, welcome to Eco-Socialism 2020 from Rebellion to Revolution, hosted by Green Left with the support of the Socialist Alliance. My name is Markella Panagiris, and I'm going to be chairing this morning's session, which is titled Their COVID Crisis and Our Eco-Socialist Response. We are hosting this conference on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land. I want to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and I extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today and online. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Since we are gathering today from all over Australia and also around the world, I would like to invite our Zoom attendees to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land they are on themselves in the chat. Eco-Socialism 2020 brings together a diverse range of speakers to discuss the urgent need for eco-socialism. We can now see with painful clarity how capitalism is sending humanity and the planet on a collision course towards ecocide. As Greta Thunberg said, our current system is not broken. The system is doing exactly what it's supposed and designed to be doing. It can no longer be fixed. We need a new system. Today we're going to be looking at how the current ecological crisis necessitates the demand for eco-socialism and how we can practically campaign for an alternative eco-socialist future, a collectivist society based on the global indigenous values of egalitarianism, cooperation and coexistence with nature. It's my first night there. This morning's panel, Their COVID Crisis and Our Eco-Socialist Response, will go for approximately an hour and a half. Each speaker will talk for 15 minutes and then we'll have around 40 minutes for questions and discussion. First, a bit of quick housekeeping. Um, for folk in the resistance bookshops in Newcastle, Parramatta, so Sydney, yeah. and at the Borloo Activist Centre, toilets are close by. Please ask one of our comrades to help you if you don't know where they are. Please turn your mobiles to silent. And we also ask our Zoom attendees to put themselves on mute. Thank you. It's, it's only covering part of the screen. Okay. Oh, that's the way it is. No, I, it can go bigger. Well, I don't I just um, ask, just ask Zoom attendees again to please uh, put themselves on mute, if possible. Thank you. I can't even find that. Oh, there it is. <laughs> How did you do that? <laughs> okay, thanks, everyone. So our first speaker this morning is Peter Boyle. 
And Peter's going to be arguing that the alternative to capitalism must be eco-socialist. Peter is a member of the Socialist Alliance Australia, and he's a regular contributor to Green Left, and he's also a community activist. Peter radicalised around the Vietnam War, as well as race and class issues, after his family migrated to, Malay- to Perth from Malaysia. Rather, Peter has had a long involvement in the Aboriginal rights movement and is active in the Rojava Solidarity Campaign. He has been involved in many campaigns of international solidarity, workers' rights, democratic rights, and defence of the environment. He is still involved in building solidarity with the democracy struggle in Malaysia. Most recently, Peter has been instrumental in developing Green Left's Eco-Socialist Manifesto. When you're ready, Peter. Hi, I'm Peter Boyle, and I'm speaking from the land of the Gadigal people alongside uh, Markella here, and I'd like to acknowledge elders past and present, recognise this is Aboriginal, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, as you heard, Green Left has recently, and you may have seen it if you're reading it, published a draft eco-socialist manifesto, a draft eco-socialist manifesto. Now, objective is to use this to try and engage with what we see as a growing public discussion about the need for system change. We are encountering this discussion in our workplaces, in places of study, in media, old and new, and of course in the streets, especially in the mass demonstrations that we have seen in the last couple of years. Not just the demonstrations which directly address the climate emergency, such as the high school uh, strike and extinction rebellion, but also in the huge demonstrations that we had here in Australia in response to the uh, extraordinary and frightening bushfire crisis that lasted from November, last November to February this year and probably are going to come back to Australia very soon. But it was also seen in other protests, I think, this anti-system message. It it came through very strongly in the Black Lives Matter mobilisations, which were really big in a number of cities in Australia partly inspired by what was going on in the United States, but of course lifting up and pushing on to a higher level the campaign against Aboriginal deaths in custody, which has been a big sore issue in this country. Whether we saw it on handmade signs that people were carrying, particularly young people, I would say, or encountered it in conversations, uh, there were people acknowledging that the problem wasn't just the result of bad decisions of particular governments, political parties or, or, the, or, or the actions of individuals, but problems of the capitalist system itself. The enemy was named. The C word was used over and over again. And I think that's, that's just a fact. That has happened. And it demands a response from socialists, from eco-socialists. So this discussion, first of all, we recognize uh, this big public discussion isn't a result of some super successful propaganda or agitation effort by organized eco-socialists or socialist organizations, but rather a spontaneous response to developments in capitalism. Basically, I think the capitalist system itself is forcing this discussion on society because it has concentrated so much wealth, economic power in the hands of so few, and because this power is now brazenly being used to put their profits above and beyond everything else, including the very livability of the planet. Well, the flip side of this 
is that the defenders of the capitalist system are increasingly sounding off the planet. I mean, if you switch on in Australia, sky after dark, that's one example. If you listen to Fox News, that's another example. If you read, if you can be, if you have the stomach to read Donald Trump's Twitter rants, what the fuck? That's what rational people are thinking. Lots of rational people are thinking now. Trump has played a big role in this process, I think, because after all, the U.S. is the belly of the capitalist beast. And its president is this raving, ranting, climate change denying, racist, misogynist and psychopathic billionaire. You couldn't imagine a better negative advertisement for a bankrupt social system. But of course, Trump is just an expression <coughs> of the bankruptcy of capitalism. Okay, that's the happy part. Maybe it's true that there's this growing questioning of the capitalist system, a dissatisfaction with the system. But where is the public discussion at about what to replace capitalism with? On that question, I think we have to admit the discussion is still in the very early stages. We, as eco-socialists, argue that capitalism needs to be replaced by, a system, by an eco-socialist system, but we also have to acknowledge that we have a big job ahead of us to explain, first, what that means, and two, let alone that it is or should be the alternative. In the draft eco-socialist manifesto, we argue that the necessary alternative to capitalism is eco-socialism because capitalism has left humanity with very little other choice and less than a decade to take the radical action that's needed to avert catastrophic climate change. And if anyone has been following uh, uh, the Twitter, they would have seen that on October 21, Adam Bant, leader of the Greens here, put out a tweet which was reporting from a Senate's estimate committee in Parliament in Australia, where the bureau, the chief of the Bureau of Meteorology, Andrew Johnson, uh, under questioning from a senator, um, from one of the Green senators, I remember who it was now, uh, said that Australia was on track to 4.4 degree rise in temperature by the end of the decade. If you know, on uh, if the uh, medium projection, an uh, uh, international projection, uh, on the basis of countries carrying out their promise emission targets were met, if they were met, and that's a big if, the whole world's, um, according to their projections, the whole world's um, uh, temperature increase by the end of the century was going to be 3.4, but because of the peculiarities of Australia, that would translate into 4.4 degrees. As Adam Band said, that would signal the end of civilization as we know it. So just to give you a, 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 um, an idea of what we're talking about. The concentration of ownership and, and of critical human resources and social resources is now monopolized by 2,095 billionaires. That's Forbes' calculation of how many billionaires there are around the world. And it's abundantly clear that this billionaire class overwhelmingly is blocking the action that's urgently needed to break from fossil fuels, to break the colossal production of toxic waste, and to halt the extinction crisis. And so we argue in the manifesto, one, 
that the political dictatorship, if you like, of this billionaire class needs to be broken. That's a political necessity to get anything done. Two, then a program of public works, huge public works, costing a lot of money, has to be undertaken in order to make the urgent shifts to address both ecological crisis as well as social needs and social justice. And ultimately, this will mean a radical socialization of the critical resources currently monopolized by that billionaire class. So in simple terms, what this means is that radical eco-socialist action now presents itself to the general public, not just as some ideological preference of eco-socialists or socialists, but rather urgent, practical, and global necessity. Now, I think another thing which is interesting, and Greta Thunberg has alluded to this, because the world has gone through the COVID-19 pandemic, the world has been given a major reminder of what an emergency means. And even some outright capitalist governments have been forced to take actions that they would never have contemplated before because, to some degree or another, they make inroads into the presumed rights of that billionaire class to run things the way that they, 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 wanted, they wanted to. Our eco-socialist, draft eco-socialist manifesto argues, history teaches us that people's political consciousness can develop rapidly in the process of sustained collective struggle and that such movements will act as schools of direct democracy. They can also give birth to new institutions of popular democracy. And therefore, it is of critical importance to build mass movements around programs of immediate and transitional measures that the climate emergency demands. It says that the radical Green New Deal programs, championed, for instance, by former British Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn uh, and uh, Bernie Sanders and the US Green Party, and in Australia, uh, currently, the Greens under Adam Bandt, are example of the sort of programs that could be struggled if struggle for take the, the movement forward. However, the manifesto also, the draft manifesto also says the system change potential of any such Green New Deal or transitional program can only be realized by an independent mass movement that is prepared to go beyond the limits of electoral campaigns. So that's the argument we've put forward. The next question I want to touch on is this question, which is maybe it's a bit more of a theoretical question, if you like, but I think it's a real question. Has capitalism reached its use-by date? Well, the push by, for system change, I've argued before, is driven by the contradictions in the existing system. But what stage are these contradictions at? Nearly 160 years, 62 years ago, Karl Marx made this observation in his preface to a contribution to a critique of political economy. It's basically the document that, 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 that uh, sketched out the argument that he would later develop in capital. At a certain stage of development, he wrote, the material productive forces of society come into conflict with the existing relations of production. From forms of development of those productive forces, these relations turn into fetters. Thus, then begins an era of social revolution. Well, are we there yet, is the question. Today, we can see nominally democratic capitalist governments have been turned into brazen kleptocracies 
as the biggest capitalist corporations actually seek to escape the limits of private property to ensure their profits. Let me give you an example. In Australia, where the mining industry, much of it exporting fossil fuels, coal and gas, is and the deeply entwined banking sector are some of the biggest recipients of a huge degree of corporate welfare. Their CEOs have a bigger say in running government than the parliament, let alone the people. And every single major capitalist venture today involves the systematic pillaging of the public purse through direct government subsidies, privatizations, and or tax concessions. Every infrastructure plan that you can see, big infrastructure plan being carried out now, is based on publicly subsidized and even guaranteed private profit. All this at the expense of increasing public and household debt. But Marx also noted in that same preface, no social order is ever destroyed before all the productive forces for which it is sufficient to have been developed and new have developed and new superior relations of production never replace the older ones before the material conditions for their existence have matured within the framework of the old society. Has capitalism reached that stage? Well, if the development of productive forces is fairly measured by GDP growth, then despite the uh, global recession that COVID-19 pandemic has brought forward, and the COVID-19 pandemic itself, you know, a result of capitalism's chronic rifts with nature, which I won't go into detail here, but we can go into questioning. Well, then the answer would have to be no. Because there's an army of IMF, World Bank, and OECD economists, among others, who can quite confidently predict, despite the situation, a return to global GDP growth. But in this stage of capitalism, is increasing GDP productive development? Well, writers like Naomi Klein, like Mike Davis, John Bellamy Foster, Jason Hickel, among others, have explained that much of this GDP growth now is destructive rather than productive. As Bellamy Foster says in an interview we ran in Greenleft, ours is a waste-based economy built into the very structure of monopoly capitalism. We are very efficient, he's talking about the United States, at producing or outsourcing products like plastic straws, which are so cheap that we use them in a drink for a few minutes, then throw them away where they don't decompose and they end up in the oceans ingested by fish after which others have to be produced, which can be used for a few more minutes and discarded. We consume hundreds of millions of plastic straws a day. We spend hundreds of billions of dollars a a year in the United States on marketing. And much of this marketing is considered a cost of production. But it's all about selling things, getting people to buy things they don't need or they don't really want. So the capitalist system isn't efficient after all, Taking all this into consideration, it is incredibly wasteful, by far the most wasteful system in history, and it's accompanied by abysmal poverty for many people. Mike Davis has explained how, and I think this is a great example, particularly in the light of COVID, the big pharmaceutical companies have long been holding back research and development of the new antibiotics and, and antivirals. Mike Davis says, of the 18 
largest pharmaceutical companies, 15 have totally abandoned the field. Heart medicines, addictive tranquilizers, and treatments for male impotence are profit leaders, not the defenses against hospital infections, emerging disease, traditional tropical killers, and a universal vaccine for influenza has been a possibility, he writes, for decades, but never a profitable priority. So there you go. It's uh, Viagra rather than uh, uh, cures uh, for, for the illnesses that kill millions of people. So in conclusion, about 12,000 years ago, human societies were forced by climate change. It wasn't human-induced climate change then, but it was nevertheless climate change, to shift, begin the shift to settle agriculture. Some 6,000 years later, some of those first societies that shifted to settle agriculture began to involve, evolve into the first class-divided societies in human history, breaking from a millennial tradition, human tradition, of living collectively and in a sustainable relationship with nature. And ever since then, those class-divided societies have been waging a ruthless war on indigenous communities trying to hold on to the older collectivist tradition. And that war has continued right up until this day. When the first societies were forced to make the switch to settle agriculture, remember they used the discoveries and technologies that had been developed over the course of the thousands of years of social practice before. And you only need, in Australia, people who have read Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe to be reminded of that reality. So eco-socialism, I would argue, is a return to a form of social organization based on the two indigenous fundamental principles of collectivism and living in harmony of nature, with nature. However, with the benefit of modern technology and science. A successful eco-socialism would have to be based on direct democracy and embrace the diversity if it's not to lapse back into the old class divided capitalist society. I think in broad terms, this is the modern experience of the horrible uh, transformations in Russia and China. And we can also see that every single living revolution today has had to pioneer new institutions of direct democracy simply to move forward. The current impasse that capitalism has, has reached means that such a reversion risks uh, human survival. So there's no doubt that building new institutions of effective direct democracy is a creative challenge for humans, for human society. However, we can learn from the collective traditions which humanity once shared, the, the long collective tradition that humanity once shared, but as well for more recent experiences of attempts at popular and revolutionary democracy. From the heroic, if short-lived, Paris Commune of 1871, to the exciting democratic confederalist experiment now being carried out in, in the Rojava revolution in northern Syria. Okay, comrades, the draft eco-socialist manifesto is just one contribution to a very big discussion, and we hope it will provoke debate, and we hope that we'll be able to develop further through a collective sharing of experiences across all borders. And this conference, and we hope there will be several other regional conferences, eco-socialism conferences that we'll put on, is part of this process. Thank you. 
Right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to a recording of a talk um, that took place on a forum last weekend titled Eco-Socialism 2020 from Rebellion to Revolution by Peter Boyle. Anyway, we're getting to the end of our program. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week, and um, stay tuned afterwards for Beyond Zero Missions. And yep, hope to see you all next week. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders And at last since the age of Kant Away with all your superstitions Serve all masses Arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap